This podcast is supported by the Stanford Cyber Initiative, which aims to produce research and frame debates on the future of cyber social systems. Learn more about the Cyber Initiative at cyber.stanford.edu. This podcast is also sponsored by Worldview Stanford, which creates interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. Welcome to Raw Data, where we explore how big data and digital technologies are changing relationships across society. I'm Leslie Chang. And I'm Mike Osborne. Today's episode, love. Now, there's a lot of chatter out there about hookup culture and promiscuity, but that's not actually what we're going to talk about on the show today. Instead, we are going to talk about love, actual relationships, which, of course, starts with dating. And when it comes to finding love these days, more and more people are jumping into the fray through online dating. Like, for example, my friend John. John is in his mid-20s. He's good-looking, very smart, funny, quirky, a little nerdy, and he has a great job at a tech company. He's one of my dear friends from college, and he's been doing online dating for about two years now. I know he's had some moments of frustration with the whole thing, so we decided to sit down in studio to talk about it. What are you looking for? That has become less clear over time. (laughs) Well, okay, so what was it at the beginning? Uh... <laughs> um, initially, I was looking for a relationship, like a like a long like, yes, mm-hmm. like trying to date someone longer than three months. Basically, it okay. sounds like kind of a weird goal. But... No, I don't think that's weird at all. Yeah, I mean, so that was that was my goal. That was my goal. That's past tense. I'm assuming he hasn't found a girlfriend. No, unfortunately, he hasn't. He's been on fifty or sixty first dates, but nothing has really worked out. But John is an analytical guy, so he keeps trying to figure out whether he's doing something wrong here. I've had to modify, you know, change certain behaviors that were not getting me more dates. I see. Which was like what? Um, I think I was a little overly chatty on text. I think the getting meals with people on first dates, like I was getting brunches with people a lot. And that's really expensive, first of all. (laughs) Yeah. And second of all, it seemed to not work. It's a little formal, and it's a little, you're stuck there for two hours. So this sounds normal. This is what I hear from a lot of people about online dating. Yeah, a lot of the process can be awkward, and you end up dealing with a lot of rejection. And until I talked to John, I don't think I fully internalized how difficult and angst-filled the whole thing can be. He told me it can get pretty lonely. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the hardest parts for me is that I don't really have anyone to kind of bounce those ideas off of. You know, what works, what doesn't, it's kind of, it's really hard to do those experiments, right? You can't really experiment with things because the person is changing, right? So you could try to be analytical about setting up your profile a certain way, and you could try to, you know, have one photo and change one photo every week. But the problem is you can never isolate what's actually the problem in your profile. So it seems like big data could help with this online dating problem, right? We put so much information out there about ourselves. Why is the matching still so difficult? To get started on all this, we decided to reach out to one of our favorite big data people on Stanford campus, Dr. Michal Kaczynski. Kaczynski's been on raw data before. He did this study where he showed that he could predict your personality based on your Facebook likes. 
Recently, he's been trying to train a computer to deduce your personality from your profile pictures. He's currently writing a paper about it, and he was actually contacted by some online dating websites. When we finally got him in studio, we asked him, what do you know about online dating? Turns out he knows more than we thought. I did a lot of practical research, you know. I live in the <laughs> Bay Area, and uh, this is apparently how it is being done here. It seems that in a way we actually went a step back, which is you go online to one of the dating websites, uh, you look at a bunch of CVs really, and then you invite those people for the interviews. Uh, you interview them for 15 minutes and, you know, decide whether they're, you know, hired uh, or not. And, uh, what does uh, getting hired mean? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to get too racy with it. So you had some experiences online dating? Well, very good experiences as well. Like I met plenty of very interesting people. And I, in a way, like I think it's very easy to meet people with whom you would have an amazing conversation. It's not so easy to find people... I believe, that you could basically build your life with. Kaczynski told us that pairing singles is actually a really hard problem. This is one of life's big decisions, and it's not clear what information is most important. And I think it's not only dating websites should be interested in that. We all should be interested in that. We can do it for music and books. We can increasingly do it with other products. I can match you with, uh, you know, perfect investment product or, you know, a car that you enjoy driving. But we still, I think, know very little about matching people with their significant others. At the same time, it's not like we don't know anything. Online dating is actually a really interesting category of big data. I mean, usually when we think about big data, we think about Google and Facebook and Amazon and the big tech companies. But when you think about it, of course online dating websites are going to have very personal and very rich information about you. And when you pool all of the data together from the millions of people, obviously some interesting information is going to pop out. One of our favorite books that captures all this is Dataclism by Christian Rudder. He's one of the co-founders of the popular dating website, OkCupid. OkCupid is one of the biggest dating services in the country. We set up maybe, or help facilitate 30 or 40,000 first dates every night, probably created something around the order of half a million marriages in the uh, 10 years we've been around. OkCupid prides themselves on their matching algorithm. In fact, their website says, we use math to find you dates. We built OkCupid from the beginning to collect information about people, although, you know, this kind of predates big data as a term. We just thought of it as information, honestly. I mean, we would, we the, the core of the, of the site are these match questions. You know, stuff like, do you want to have kids? Do you smoke? Whatever, that kind of thing. But we found kind of over time that that data isn't as interesting. Uh, the more interesting data was the stuff that people would actually go out and do, you know, who likes whom, who sends messages, and where those messages go, uh, and how often those messages are replied to, things like that. The things that are basically impossible or very unlikely to be faked or misunderstood. This is why the data on online dating sites is so emblematic of big data in general. There's the things we say we want, the stuff we show, the information we offer. But then there's what we actually do. There's our behavior. A lot of times, those two things diverge. All of that information is relevant, but as lost souls looking for love on the Internet, we may not be the best judges of what information is most valuable. For example, you might think that religious beliefs would be pretty important. But according to Christian, OkCupid's data doesn't really bear that out. On the other hand, there are very strong trends when it comes to race, especially in the U.S. Overall, we favor people of our own race, and there are a few other trends that also really stick out. 
basically every dating site I've ever looked at, you see pretty much the same pattern. Um, black women get worse votes, fewer messages, fewer replies um, from all other types of men, except for black men, but Asian men, Latinos, whites, all sort of discount, if you will, uh, black women. And black men and Asian men both get the same sort of discount from, from women of all types. The data on race is uncomfortable. Maybe it's unsurprising, but it still tells a sad story. When it comes to heterosexual relationships, black women, black men, and Asian men all get fewer messages and replies. In the aggregate, these groups receive lower attractiveness scores. We see this in OkCupid's data and on other sites like Match.com. People may say in their questionnaire that they're open to interracial relationships, but their behavior says something else. And it's not like this is a few select groups. This is millions of people revealing attitudes we're all aware of, but oftentimes have a hard time talking about. For the most part, OkCupid doesn't have a lot of information about what happens after a couple gets matched. But three or four hundred times a day, there are couples who will deactivate their accounts. Now, this is a small sample size compared to their millions of users. But when it happens, the data scientists at OkCupid can look at these couples' digital histories for trends that predict a successful match. There are a few obvious indicators, like the way people answer the question, do you want to have kids? But there's a few subtler ones or ones that are unexpected that are surprisingly strong predictors of whether people end up together. Uh, And the one is uh, if both sides of a couple agree on the question, do you like horror movies? The people who have ended up together are disproportionately likely to have answered the same way to that question. Um, And another one is, have you ever traveled to another country alone? Again, if both sides of the couple agree uh, on their answer, they're more likely to be on that list. OkCupid is all about the data, but our sense from talking to Christian is that he thinks there's a limit to the work you can do ahead of time online before you actually meet face-to-face. There's so much, I think, about dating that's just idiosyncratic, you know, and like we can suggest people that we think you're likely to have a conversation with. But whether you actually like that person in person, it's just becomes a, it's a real crapshoot, obviously. You know, I mean, dating just kind of sucks in general. Um, <laughs> or, or it can. Sure. Yeah. And that definitely rings true for my friend John. Okay, so, do you, like, being really honest, mm-hmm. now that you've gone on 50 or 60 first dates, like, you're obviously still online dating. Yes. Do you enjoy it? Yes. <laughs> that was like the longest 10 uh, yeah. second pause before. It was hard to figure out what, it's hard to figure out the emotion for it. Yeah. Right. Because there's part of me that says, wow, I've gotten to meet a lot of people and it's been really fun. It has. Yeah. I, I have had so many good experiences with so many interesting different people. But then there's a part of me that feels like it's a bit of a failure in a way. Why? Um, because the theoretical goal of dating is to get married. Right. right? In theory. Right, right. Right. And my goal is at least in line with that. My goal isn't to see as many people at once as possible. That's not really a goal of mine. So the goal is in line with the marriage thing. And, but since the, that hasn't really – or there hasn't really been that many steps towards that goal, it feels a little fail-ish. We'll talk more about the marriage thing after the break. But before that, ladies, as of the publication of this episode, John is still single and he's a total catch. 
Worldview Stanford has an upcoming course called Behind and Beyond Big Data. In the course, you'll explore a lot of the themes covered in raw data, new sources of knowledge, market opportunities, and some of the emerging challenges around privacy and security. During the course, you'll come to Stanford for three days, where you'll meet and interact with experts from across the university and Silicon Valley. You'll also have a chance to collaborate with other curious, like-minded leaders. You can apply now for the spring session of Behind and Beyond Big Data. Our course opens online this April, and the campus visit is in early June. For more information, visit worldview.stanford.edu. Like John said, for a lot of people, the theoretical goal of dating is marriage. But even when we pair off, it's not like that's the end of the story. We have high expectations when it comes to being with someone happily ever after. Here's Michal Kaczynski again. Another thing that happens here in the Western world, because this is not a case in many other cultures, is that we, have a current, we currently have a cult of infatuation and, you know, falling in love madly and, you know, really wanting to spend, you know, every single minute of our lives with this other person and being really attracted to them physically and so on. Uh, and people believe that this will continue forever, which uh, I'm sorry to say, but any uh, scientist studying the issue will tell you it's wrong. Um, well, probably it wouldn't even be very practical if we just stayed completely infatuated and uh, and crazy about each other and not able to think about anything else for our whole lives simply because there are other things we need to do with our lives. When we're single, it's easy to obsess about finding the right partner. But what about actually making a relationship work? Marriage is hard, and our view of it changes from generation to generation. Marriage as an institution has changed a lot recently as society adopts new views about same-sex marriage and gender roles. Michael Rosenfeld is a professor of sociology at Stanford. He's currently studying how couples meet and, more importantly, how they stay together. Like a lot of researchers, he's excited about the data that's coming out of sites like OkCupid, but he acknowledges that there are some pretty big limitations. It's true that the dating sites gather a kind of data that people haven't had before, which is the nature of communication, who contacts who, who, who responds to whose contact. I mean, that was something that we always wanted to know about, but we never actually had data about that because all of that proto-relationship stuff gets forgotten. The thing that's less useful about the dating sites is that once people really get together, they close their profiles on the dating site, and that's when the relationship really starts, and that's when their information kind of ends. So they have a lot of great data on the very early stages, but they don't know nearly as much as they'd want to know about how these couples end up. Are couples who meet online more or less likely to stay together in the long term? Do they have happy unions? Is there data in their digital history that predicts a successful marriage? These are all questions that we don't have answers to. We don't have enough data yet. So let's take a step back and look at what has changed. How exactly is online dating rewriting the rules? Well, for starters, the places we go to meet prospective mates has changed a lot over the last generation. In the past, different parts of our community and social life were much more involved. It was mostly through family in church, in primary and secondary school. Those were like the traditional ways. And over time, family and church and secondary school have all declined in influence because people are marrying later, and so they're not around family 
and secondary school when they're meeting the people they're later going to marry. You know, in the 70s and 80s, there was an increase in people meeting in college and people meeting through work. And in the 90s, we got the Internet. So the Internet really sort of took off. The Internet has changed the dating scene for everybody, but it's affected some groups more than others. It's been especially important for certain communities, like the LGBT community. So it turns out, for instance, that of all recently formed same-sex couples in the United States, about 67% met online. Whereas for hetero couples, it's about 22-23%, which is still a lot, but it's nothing like the 67%. So for people who are looking for something that's hard to find, the Internet is, is even more useful than it is for everybody else. Obviously, sexual preference is a very important criteria for finding a lasting mate. But there are a lot of other things that factor into our decision. So we asked Rosenfeld how important, for example, is something like education. The truth is that the education has always mattered because it sort of shapes people's view of the world and the kind of culture they're interested in. So people who have similar educational background, you know, tend to get along a little more harmoniously. They have the same tastes. There hasn't really been a change in the pattern of who marries who by education. What's changed over time is women's labor force participation, right? So now in every couple, both people are likely to work. And so that kind of magnifies income inequality between households because if they're both high earners, you have sort of twice as much of an income gap. There's actually been debate about whether online dating might make income inequality worse. If people are able to filter their searches by education level and education is correlated with income, then the theory is that we could see more couples pairing off by socioeconomic status. For example, there's a dating app called The League that's received some negative press about being elitist. The way The League works is that it sources some of your profile information from LinkedIn. And then there's an application process to use the app, and not everyone gets accepted. A few months ago, Amanda Bradford, the CEO of The League, wrote a blog post where she addressed the criticism. She explained that one of the reasons she started The League was to cater to professionally ambitious women. Career-oriented women often struggle to find partners who share their attitudes around women's equality. Amanda Bradford told us she was hesitant to respond to the elitist label because she didn't want to alienate the men on her dating app. Thank you for noticing that part of the blog post because... I think, and I don't think this is true for all men at all, and I don't want to, you know, stereotype or generalize men in any way, but I do think that it is still a relatively new concept to look at a female and not think of, you know, she's going to be the mother of my kids, she's going to be um, the one who raises the kids, the one that makes sure the home is, you know, beautiful and decorates it, and I think I think that we're still growing out of these kind of old stereotypes of the the, the husband and the wife role. Research also shows that for career-oriented women, there's a tendency to want to find a partner of equal or higher status. And I think that might be something, honestly, that's bred into us at a young age is that, you know, the, the woman is not typically the breadwinner in the family, and we don't have a lot of role models where that's true. And I also think that's something to kind of double-click on as we, as we move forward is, you know, it is okay for the woman to make more money, and it's not—there's nothing— you know, bad about the guy that doesn't make as much as a woman, and that shouldn't be a reason to eliminate a guy. Um, and so I think there's like redefinitions that are needed for both genders as we kind of move into this like very equal society that we're now building. I actually have a friend who told me about the league. Coincidentally, my friend's also named Amanda. 
My friend Amanda is in her mid-30s. She's very pretty, she went to really good schools, and she's definitely career-oriented. Amanda offered to sit down with me and show me how the app works. We started by checking out some profile pics of different guys. Is that a selfie? So, (laughs) that is a selfie. And I really dislike selfies (laughs) on these dating profiles because to me it says... I don't have any friends to be able to take a picture of me. There's an ocean in the background. That is true. So he's doing something fun. And there are people who, so as we swipe through the pictures, if there are some really good pictures that show a great person, then he could be redeemed. But when it is completely over is when somebody takes a selfie of themselves in front of a mirror. Okay, so Jake, very good looking. Very good looking. Is he, a, um, is he a doctor? He looks it looks like, like a doctor. he's a doctor. He's a little bit younger than me, which gives me a little bit of pause. He's like a year younger. He is, but as you know, men mature yeah, at no, a very no, different, no. very different pace. But you know, he I'm could, sorry, he that could is be. A very handsome man. <laughs> he could. <laughs> so I, I agree. Very handsome man. Um, wow. And look, a picture of him in Shanghai. That's kind of nice too. Um, sure. So, okay, so yeah, so I'll, I'll put him as a yes. Amanda started doing the online dating thing a few years ago. As she's experimented, she's refined her criteria. So I tend to like men who are a little bit older, and that has to do, I think, with just being a little bit more settled, a little bit more knowledgeable about themselves. So I, there are a lot of men who I find attractive who are in their early 40s or a little bit beyond that. And I find it reassuring when they have actually been married and divorced because I have dated men who are in that age range who have never been married before. And when somebody has made it that long without being married, there might be a specific reason for that. Or if you're single, certain characteristics become stronger because they're not contained. Um, So for a man who's made it to his mid to late 40s and not been in a really serious relationship, it's hard for them to frequently figure out what it's like to be with another person. Amanda told me that when she first started online dating, she felt like she was open to meeting a lot of different types of people. She didn't want to filter too much. But now I know, okay, education is really important. Someone who has a career that they're focused on. Someone who doesn't want or need to spend all of their time with another person who has kind of their own friends and own interests and independence and somebody who wants to be in a long-term relationship and someone who also preferably does not want to have children. Like I'm now realizing these are very important things to me that are are fairly non-negotiable and I couldn't have told you that three years ago. Amanda has decided for personal reasons that she doesn't want to have kids. But she actually doesn't say that in her profile. She likes kids and is totally open to being a stepmom. The problem is the app only asks, do you want kids? It's a yes-no question. She worries that if she puts no kids on her profile, it'll send the wrong message. It all speaks to the challenge of presenting yourself online. There are subtleties in our attitudes that are difficult to digitize. There's only so much you can communicate about who you are. Michal Kaczynski's take on all this is that maybe dating websites aren't looking at the most important data. The problem, the big problem is that I do not believe that people fall in love with each other and decide to spend their lives with each other 
because of the color of their eyes or because what they have written in their CVs. This basically is way too important of a decision to leave it to our feeble brains. So I think that basically our instincts completely take over here. And I think that online dating platforms haven't figured it out yet simply because they're looking at the wrong parts of the data here. So we like to focus on our explicit preferences. You know, I like women between this and that age with this and that character and education and that personality and those interests and so on. Whereas I think that selecting a partner, selecting a spouse, selecting a mate is mainly driven by our biology. Which is maybe why so many couples who look like a perfect match in the digital universe just don't click in person. To get a better handle on the science that makes for good chemistry, Kaczynski suggested we get in touch with this woman. So my name is Marty Hazelton. I'm a professor here at UCLA, and my research is on, most recently, the hormonal foundations of sexuality, and I've been particularly interested in women's sexuality and how it changes over the course of the ovulation cycle. From a purely evolutionary perspective, the name of the game is producing the best possible offspring. We tend to forget about our cavemen biology when we're filling out our online profiles and signing up for dating apps. But our biological hardwiring runs deep. For example, there's evidence that as women's hormones fluctuate across the ovulation cycle, their preferences in mates change. They may be more attracted to certain physical traits when they're most likely to become pregnant. You know, it looked to us like women were placing a premium on sexiness in potential partners on fertile days of the cycle. And so we published a bunch of papers that were elaborations on that general theme. And we concluded that, in fact, there are changes across the cycle in women's preferences for these indicators of ancestral genetic fitness in men. So things like deeper voices, uh, more muscular bodies, scent of symmetry, and so on. So there's evidence that women's decisions may be influenced by where they are in their cycle. But there seems to be something chemical going on for men as well. Marty's lab did an experiment where they wanted to test the power of scent. They collected body odor samples from women by asking them to put gauze pads in their armpits. We call this the armpit study. And we collected those samples at both high and low fertility within their ovulation cycle. So high fertility would be the day of ovulation and a couple of days before that. Um, we had these women wear the, the gauze pads for 24 to 48 hours. And then we also collected a, another sample at a low fertility point in the cycle. So when conception is not a possibility. Um, we took all of those samples, froze them in the freezer, and then defrosted them all at once brought a bunch of guys in, and had them smell the high and low fertility samples and just tell us which they preferred. And men prefer the high fertility body odor samples over the low fertility body odor samples, and they rate them as you know, sexier and more attractive. Um, so men may be detecting cues of fertility through scent. One of the amazing realities of the digital age is that we're able to do so much remotely. But catching a whiff of a would-be mate... Still has to happen in person. If you ask people, you know, what is it that's important in a mate? Um, tell me the top five things. They're probably not going to say that I like their natural body odor, right? I mean, that's not going to be something that comes to their mind. But if you say, what if you didn't? Then all of a sudden they go, oh, 
Now that you mention it, (laughs) that would be a real problem. Um, So it's kind of one of these things that is probably important. It's probably underappreciated how important it is because it's mostly flying under the radar of conscious awareness. But when it goes wrong, we become aware of it. Pheromones and hormones, these may be the most important predictors that are not making it into our dating profiles. For now, we still need to meet IRL. Seeing the way that somebody's body moves, seeing the way they, you know, look in person as opposed to in two dimensions. Um, Maybe even, you know, getting some chemical communication is happening somehow. You know, literally, um, you know, the notion of chemistry might literally be true. Um, And so we're getting some sort of chemical information, especially if we have intimate contact with the person. I totally believe that this is uh, this is the future. I think that the next big dating website that gets your DNA information from one of the DNA testing services, like 23andMe, for instance, um, when you Google that, when you Google um, pheromones and dating or DNA and dating, you actually find few websites that try to do it. I haven't seen anything successful as. But as you have go- you have Googled it. I did Google it, correct. Uh, good for you. <laughs> really? You were like, you know what? This isn't working. I need somebody who can smell me better. <laughs> Was that the idea? Uh, well, Michael, it's a, it's a Bay Area, you know, so I thought, <laughs> hey, it would be amazing to actually become a Mark Zuckerberg of dating. And, uh, <laughs> and I was just wondering if someone is already, already doing it. Who knows what the future will look like. But online dating has already changed a lot about how we find each other, pair off, and hopefully live happily ever after. We now have access to more options for finding partners, especially as the Internet and algorithms have displaced more traditional routes for connecting with each other. The truth is that dating, relationships, love, it's all scary. This is one of the most important decisions we make in life, and we all have a fear of rejection. Dating platforms allow us to mitigate some of that fear by helping us filter ahead of time. And in some ways, online dating is the perfect example of how we're learning information about ourselves that we never would have known in the past. It's also the perfect example of how big data is transforming the fundamental nature of how we socialize. Whether we're talking about race, sexual preference, or income inequality, the big data of our relationships has a way of capturing the broader structure and changing values of society. And as we integrate more and more technology into how we find and build relationships, we can't forget how our instincts might influence our decisions. It's a lot to chew on, and Leslie and I sincerely wish every dater the best of luck in their journey. That's it for the show today, but before we leave, ladies, as of the publication of this episode, Michal Kaczynski is still single and also a total catch. Raw Data is produced by me, Leslie Chang, and Mike Osborne. Our theme song is by Nick Carlozzi. We'd like to thank Michelle Dragoescu, Shereen Ardakani, Allison Burke, Nancy Murphy, and Steve Griffin for editing help this week. Special thanks also to my friend Amanda and Leslie's friend John for opening up to us about their online dating experiences. Right now, The League is available in San Francisco and New York, and they expect to be in more cities soon. We recommend checking out Christian Rudder's book, Dataclism. It's an excellent introduction to big data. Raw Data is a production of Worldview Stanford, and you can find us on the web at worldview.stanford.edu. We're on Twitter at Raw Data Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Michał Kuczynski is still single and also a total catch. Pretty sure he's single. Pretty sure he's single. We think he's single. We're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I'm happy okay, well, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> From PRX.